This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. It's Sunday, February 10th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. Breaking news this morning as Virginia's embattled governor, Ralph Northam, sat down with Gail King for CBS This Morning. We'll have a preview. Yes, I have thought about resigning, but, but I've also thought about what Virginia needs right now. Gail's interview comes as the scandals involving the top three state elected officials in Virginia near meltdown proportions. Now, Virginia Democrats are calling for Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax to quit following accusations of sexual misconduct and now rape. As the governor, attorney general, and Republican leader in the state Senate struggle to deal with racially insensitive photos from their past, we'll talk with two Democrats from the Virginia congressional delegation, Jennifer Wexton and Don Beyer. Then, as the deadline nears for a deal to keep the government from shutting down again, what's the status of negotiations? We'll ask a key conservative in the House, North Carolina's Mark Meadows. All of that and more news of the week just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin with the chaos in Virginia's government and the scandals that have rocked the top three Democrats in the Commonwealth. Governor Ralph Northam, Lieutenant Governor Justin Fairfax, and Attorney General Mark Herring. CBS This Morning co-host Gail King has just returned from Richmond, Virginia, where she spoke to the governor in his only television interview. I know this has been a very difficult week for you in the state of Virginia, so where would you like to begin? Well, it has been a a difficult week, and, and, you know, if you look at Virginia's history, we're now uh, at the 400-year anniversary, uh, just 90 miles from here. uh, In 1619, the first uh, indentured servants from Africa landed on our shores in Old Point Comfort, what we call now Fort Monroe, and while... Also known as slavery. Yes. And, you know, while we have made a lot of progress uh, in in Virginia, slavery has ended, schools have been desegregated, we have ended the Jim Crow laws, uh, easier access to voting, Uh, it is abundantly clear that we still have a lot of work to do. And I I really think uh, this week uh, raised a level of awareness uh, in the Commonwealth and in this country Mm -hmm. uh, that we haven't seen certainly in my lifetime. And why you think you still deserve this job when so many people are calling for you to step down? Well, again, we, we have worked very hard. Uh, we've had a good first year, and, and I'm a leader. Uh, I've been in some very difficult situations, life and death situations, taking care of sick children. And right now, you're a doctor, yeah. right now, Virginia needs someone that can heal, 
Uh, there's no better person to do that than a doctor. Virginia also needs someone who is strong, who has empathy, who has courage, and who has a moral compass. And that's why I'm not going anywhere. I have learned from this. I have a lot more to learn. But we're in a unique opportunity now. I, again, the 400-year anniversary of, of uh, the history, whether it be good or bad, uh, in Virginia to really make some impactful changes. And slavery in this country, yes. in this state, yeah. Did you ever think about resigning when the drumbeat became so loud? And by the way, they're still beating for you to step down. I don't live in a vacuum. And yes. so, yes, I, I have heard it. And I've had, this has been a difficult week. And again, I, I'm fine. It's been mainly difficult for Virginia in this country. So, yes, I have thought about resigning, but, but I've also thought about what Virginia needs right now. And I, I really think that I'm in a position where, where I can take Virginia to the next level, and it, it will be very positive. And, you know, we have a, a number of inequities uh, in this uh, country right now and in Virginia, and, and we're in a position to really stop talking so much and now to take action with policy to address a lot of these inequities. Gail, thank you for bringing us this interview. What did you make of the governor's explanation? Well, the interview was at 7 o'clock, and he was there ready to go. We were in his house, of course. He was there ready to go, and he was on time. And he clearly is very anguished by this whole situation. I know that this is an attempt at damage control. Who's calling us, Margaret? I know that this is clearly an attempt at damage control, but I didn't feel that he was spinning a story. I think he's anguished. I think he's very sincere, and I think that he's hoping that once voters and viewers hear his story, that they will reconsider the calls for his resignation. That said, he's not planning to go anywhere. He thinks that he, he, he feels he's in a very unique position to lead Virginia to another way and that this is actually as painful as it is, a very good conversation for us all to have. He thinks he can ride this out. I think he's hoping he can ride it out. He is not going to step down. He is not going. I even asked, under what circumstances would you step down? And he couldn't even give, he did not want to give an answer to that question because that is not how he's thinking. That is not what he wants. And that's not what he believes that he should step down. What do you think, though, about what this has sparked in terms of a national conversation? I mean, this is a state that has a long, troubled history with race. It was the capital of the Mm -hmm. Confederacy. Mm -hmm. This has really resonated around Mm -hmm. the country. And he is aware of all of that. And I think I said, listen, in Virginia, you have one, two, three people that are involved in a very messy scandal all at the same time. What do you make of that? He knows that the optics aren't good. He said, but I'm concentrating on my battle and my fight, and I want to figure out a way how I can turn this around. And and you continued your conversation with him. Let's play that clip. Let's talk about uh, Justin Fairfax. Yes. In the beginning, he did not call for your resignation. He said, you know, let the governor decide. I know the governor will make the right decision. But now his story has also changed. Yes. As you know, two women have come out and accused him of sexual assault, yes. um, sexual inappropriateness. And they have both said that if there is an impeachment hearing, that they will testify against him. Where do you sit on how you feel about Justin Fairfax today? Are you two calling for him to step down? I can only imagine that it must take tremendous courage for women to step forward and and talk about these things that, that just are so hurtful. And, and these accusations are very, very serious. Uh, they need to be taken uh, seriously. Um, as you know, uh, Governor Fairfax has called for an investigation. I really think where we are now, we need to get to the truth. Uh, the, the, tr- the truth is important. And certainly, 
Yes, he too is calling for an investigation. Yes, he is, and I support that. And and if these uh, accusations are determined to be true, I don't think he's going to have any other option but to resign. At this time, do you think he should resign? That's going to be a decision that he needs to make. I know he needs to make it, but what do you think? Do you well, think again, he... I want the truth to come out. I, I certainly support uh, an investigation. And again, uh, these accu- accusations are very serious, and we need to get to the bottom of them. And now your attorney general is also um, also has some explaining to do about yeah. his use of blackface. He said it was because he was Halloween and he was dressed up as his favorite one of his favorite rappers, Curtis Blow. Mm-hmm. Calls for him to resign as well. Mm-hmm. Your thoughts about that? Well, I know uh, Attorney General Herring well, as I do uh, Lieutenant Governor Fairfax, um, and you know we have all grown. Uh, I don't know what. Uh, the Attorney General was thinking uh, what his perception was of, of, of race, of, of the use of blackface back then. But I can tell you that I'm sure, just like me, uh, he has grown. Uh, he has served Virginia well. Uh, and he and I and Justin, all three of us, have fought for equality. Mm-hmm. And so, again, um, I uh, regret that uh, our Attorney General is in this position, but this is a decision that he's going to need to make. Yeah, lots of decisions that need to be made. He has not spoken. I, th- I thought this was interesting. He has not spoken to Justin Fairfax uh, since his second accusation came out. And I said, why haven't the two of you communicated? And he said, you know, well, I'm dealing with what I'm dealing with. He's dealing with what he's dealing with. And I'm concentrating on this. I do know that the wives have reached out to one another. I was That's told that today. Yeah, but the, the two of them have not spoken. Gail, we were watching the rest of this interview on CBS this morning. Oh. Thank you. Well, we talked to him about the moonwalk. We talked about his wife. We talked about mm-hmm. how this all came about. There, I'll just say, Margaret, we have a lot of interesting information that we'll have tomorrow on CBS this morning. I know you're ready for me to go. No, Gail, we love that you were here and you brought that. I want to get reaction to your right. interview, actually. Uh, and we have someone on set to do just that. Democratic Congresswoman Jennifer Wexton, who represents Northern Virginia in Congress. Congresswoman, uh, I know you know Governor Northam. I do. He campaigned for you. The contrition you heard there, is that enough for you to say he does not need to resign? It does not change my opinion that he needs to resign. Why? Because I don't believe he can effectively lead the Commonwealth at this time. I mean, I understand that he wants, that he's feeling contrition, that he's feeling regret, but we need somebody who who can not only address the wrongs of the past, but take Virginia into the future. And I think he's lost the confidence of the people in order to be able to do that. And yet the Washington Post had a poll out uh, that published overnight, and it said Virginians are split. But an interesting portion of that said the majority of black residents say he should remain in office. Is that black public opinion persuasive to you at all? Well, I mean, that's everybody's entitled to their opinion, and that's that's persuasive. But remember, he he won a vast majority of the black vote in his election, and we're not talking about approval numbers. We're talking about people who feel that the governor should step down immediately. So it's a very different situation. Uh, the fact is, he's really lost the confidence of a lot of the people he's supposed to be leading. And what about the attorney general, uh, Herring, who also admitted to having appeared in blackface in the past? Should he resign? Well, his situation is different, and I judge each situation on its merits. The attorney general came forward proactively, is very uh, regretful and contrite. He reached out to all the African-American leaders and and other leaders, um, very heartfelt uh, anguish about what he had done. 
but he's got a lot of work to do to regain the trust of the people of Virginia. So you're withholding judgment? I'm withholding judgment. Margaret, yes. can I ask a question? Am I still Mike? No? I, I don't know that you are. Sorry, what is your question, Gail? Well, when you said that he's lost the confidence, he realizes that, but he also wants the chance to regain the confidence. Do you think he deserves that? He knows that he's lost everyone's confidence. But he still needs to be able to govern, and okay. that's the problem. If he's spending his entire rest of his term uh, apologizing and trying to preserve his own rep- reputation mm-hmm. and his legacy, mm-hmm. he's not going to be an effective governor okay. for the people of the Commonwealth. I and I don't, I don't think the governor is that selfish at the end of the day. Okay. I, I want to make sure we also talk about the lieutenant governor, Justin mm-hmm. Fairfax, because I know you have strong feelings about him as well. Um, he has made clear he's not going to resign. Do you expect there to be an attempt to impeach him? Well, one of the members of the House of Delegates has said that he intends to file uh, articles of impeachment uh, next week. That's a decision that my my former colleagues in the General Assembly are going to have to make about about how that plays out. Uh, But I expect that the lieutenant governor will do the right thing for Virginia and resign. Two of your Democratic colleagues, Senator Warner and, and Congressman Scott, have have sort of hedged their criticism, saying, if true, is there a possibility that Justin Fairfax is unfairly accused here. It, he is the subject of two extremely credible, corroborated accusations of serious sexual assault. Uh, that's the situation we're looking at right now. It seems highly unlikely that these women would come forward and subject themselves to this kind of abuse uh, if these allegations were not factual. Because I think a lot of people ask, where is the benchmark for you believing the accuser versus believing the lieutenant governor? Uh, and they apply that to various different cases, whether it was Justice Kavanaugh or their own personal experience. For you, what is the benchmark? I don't know that I can say that there's a particular benchmark. I judge every case and every every complainant and every situation on its merits. You know, I was also a prosecutor, and this is not an issue where we need to prove something to be proven beyond a reasonable doubt. Elected leaders need to be held to a higher standard. And where there are credible allegations, corroborated allegations of serious sexual assault, we're talking about rape and forcible sodomy. This is something that impacts his ability to lead in the future. The Democratic Party has really tried to stake out a moral high ground on issues of race, on issues of gender and uh, sexual assault. Do you think these stories, three Democrats here, do you think that this has damaged the party? I think that our reaction to the to these stories shows how seriously we take uh, these allegations and and uh, and conduct of our elected officials. You know, the good news is uh, Democratic elected uh, leadership, to Democratic leadership doesn't begin and end with the three men serving in elected office in Virginia right now in statewide office. We have a vast numbers of really talented, diverse, hardworking capable leaders who are able to step up and fill the void that that will be left. Congresswoman, thank you for joining us. Gail King, thank you you, for being here with us. When we come back, we'll talk with another Virginia Democrat, former lieutenant governor, now Congressman Don Baer. Don't go away. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading, and so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look. 
Those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels, and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save. And for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com save. For some more perspective, we turn to Virginia Congressman Don Beyer, who also served as the Commonwealth's Lieutenant Governor. Uh, You jinxed me there, Congressman. I'm sorry. I uh, I muddled your name there. You heard the conversation we just had with Congressman uh, Wexton and with Gail King. Uh, Do you agree? Do you think that the governor still needs to step down? I do. And I think that just the, the great confusion last weekend where he wasn't sure whether he was in the Klan robe or the blackface um, it has just sacrificed so much of his credibility and his ability to lead. Um, you know, I know he's determined to go on this reconciliation tour, but he thinks he should do that as a private citizen rather than as the governor. You don't think because of this experience, as he argued in that interview with Gail, that he can now have uh, the authority to reach out in a significant way on racial issues? Well, I know that's what he wants to do, and, and I respect him. I know he wants to rehabilitate his reputation and and even his sense of what he called his moral compass. But he sacrificed so much of his ability to govern effectively. You figure the Legislative Black Caucus in Richmond, the Congressional Black Caucus on the Hill, virtually every African-American leader I know um, has said that he needs to resign. And the the post-poll that we've talked about before, one of the things we miss is that 40% of black Virginians think he shouldn't remain. That's that's a damning number for a Democratic governor. The governor's a peer of yours. Um, do you think that the, the time, the place, the context of any of this should be considered in placing judgment on him? Yes, it should. And I think that's one of the differences between Governor Northam and Attorney General Herring. I mean, they both made dumb mistakes as young men. Um, Governor Herring, though, or Lieutenant Attorney General, rather, has been uh, incredibly remorseful, uh, very simple, took it very responsibly. Um, the, the way our, my Governor Northam handled it the first couple of days was uh, confusing, even bizarre. Um, and he's also in a different role. The attorney general is, runs the state's largest law firm, whereas the governor really has to be the role model for more than 8 million people. You know, Attorney General Herring, who you just brought up, also uh, admitted to having worn blackface at one point. If he resigns, the next in line is a Republican. Cynics yeah. would look at this and say the calculus to not be as harsh on the attorney general is influenced by that. Yeah, but I don't think that's actually true. There are, there are cynics that say this is about the next election. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think it's much more about values. Um, we would move from a, a progressive, very strong attorney general to someone who's not just a Republican, but someone who's on the arch conservative end of it. So the way our laws would be administrated in Virginia would be completely different. This isn't about party politics as much as it is about the kind of Virginia that we want. Now, the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, uh, now two of the accusers have said that they would publicly testify should there be impeachment proceedings. There was no formal investigation here. Does one need to happen? I don't really know how that happens. I mean, maybe the impeachment proceeding does that. Um, I know the the lieutenant governor's called for an FBI investigation. We don't see any way that particularly happens. Um, you know, this whole notion of how do you adjudicate guilt here is very difficult. 
I believe both women. I see no reason why they would come forward. There's nothing to gain. There's no lawsuit. There's no money involved. These were all documented some years back. It wasn't created overnight. And I believe the women. And I think if you believe the women, we have no, no call but to call for his resignation. No choice. All right. Uh, Congressman, thank you very much for giving us your perspective. Thank you, Margaret. We'll be back with more Face the Nation in just a moment. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you, that's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love or visit www.pacificlife.com. We turn now to North Carolina Republican Congressman Mark Meadows. He is the chairman of the conservative House Freedom Caucus and one of President Trump's top allies on Capitol Hill. Good to have you here. Great to be with you. Thanks so much. The White House Chief of Staff, Mick Mulvaney, was on a number of networks this morning and said uh, he absolutely cannot rule out another shutdown this week. Would you support one? Well, I think that that's accurate. Uh, Obviously, no one wants it. The president doesn't want it. Mick doesn't want it. I don't want it. At at the same time, what we're seeing with these negotiations going on, I I don't know that they're real serious about reaching a compromise. I mean, they've met twice in in almost two weeks now. And yet Uh, Senator Shelby was so optimistic after he met with the president this week. Yeah, I, I, I... I heard that, and, and Senator Shelby is a, you know, a very seasoned negotiator, and and uh, and certainly when you look at at his conversations, you can draw some optimism from it. But I can tell you, based on my conversations with conferees and a number of rank and file, there are distinct differences. Uh, and and here's here's what I'm concerned about: the Border Patrol. Uh, came in to brief the conference. They gave their top three priorities. And the conferees have said zero money for those top three priorities. How can you be serious about securing our border if the very people that are experts on securing it say these are our top three priorities, we need money, and yet they're saying zero dollars for that? I I don't understand that. So what is it that you need to see in order to get your vote and that of your caucus? Well, I think we need to make sure that our border is secure, not just from a standpoint of strategic fencing or border slats, whatever you want to call it. But we need to make sure that once and for all, we secure our border to make sure our communities are safe. And that means explicit wording that says what? Well, I think what it means is is some amount of funding, the funding that gives Border Patrol section chiefs the ability to establish priorities, work with the administration on doing that, and secure part of the Rio Grande Valley. You know, when we look at at some 30 to 40 percent of those who come here illegally, they come through one corridor that that many times is is left open. We need to secure it. That requires some type of physical barrier, and and certainly we would support that. If that number is less than $5.7 billion, uh, certainly everyone should be willing to compromise. I know I am, and uh, we'll find that. $2 billion 
would be the compromise? Well, I, I've, I've heard that reported. Honestly, when you look at zero to 5.7, somewhere in the mil- uh, middle would be, you know, a, a $2 billion to $3 billion uh, range. But it's not as much just the dollar amount. It's the flexibility and how to spend it. I think what Democrats are trying to do is say, you can spend it here, you can't spend it there. And really, the experts should be the ones deciding how we spend it. Uh, two of the senators involved in the negotiations were on Fox today saying that one of the sticking points is the number of uh, ICE agents. Um, what is that? Yeah, I think issue? it's more detention beds. When when we look at, at ICE versus detention detention beds. And what they're talking about is those who come across the border illegally, uh, cutting down on the number of beds, which would actually force uh, them being released into the United States. And so it's more of an open border policy that some Democrats have supported in the past. And and I don't think that that's, in fact, I know that's not going to be supported by this administration. So we are just days away from running out of money. Um, How does this end? And do you expect the president to declare a national emergency? Well, I I do expect the president to take some kind of uh, executive action. A national emergency is certainly part of that. There are a few other things in his toolbox that he could use. But I do expect him to do that if we don't reach a compromise. And and listen, we have about 24 hours to do that. Uh, At this point, they're going to need to look at some type of funding measure to make sure that we don't have a lapse, uh, whether that's a clean CR for a short-term basis or a a longer period going through the end of September, uh, they need to make sure that they have something uh, on the table and ready to be voted on in the Senate where we could pass it in the House without a lapse in funding. Congressman, you and your fellow Republican colleagues were incredibly critical of the last administration when they used executive action that bypassed the will and consent of Congress. How can you support it? This you know, time? I have been. And, and here's one of the things that I would reach out to my Democrat colleagues. If once and for all you're wanting to work in a bipartisan manner to return the power back to Congress, I'm willing. I'm I'm willing to do that even now with this president, with our president's party in in the White House. I'm willing to do that. But until we do that, why should we allow a Democrat president in the White House to use executive orders and and not do the same with a Republican president? Uh, I put forth measures that would actually uh, eliminate some of the executive branch power. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, philosophically, that's where I am. And yet, at, at this point, we have a crisis. We have a crisis with a, a need to secure the border that we have to do. And this president is going to build a wall one way or another. Congressman, thank you for giving us your perspective. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support, offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast 
N-O-O-M.com slash podcast and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. Welcome back to Face the Nation. Jamel Bowie is a CBS News political analyst and is now a columnist with The New York Times. Jonah Goldberg is the senior editor for The National Review. Margaret Tolive is a senior White House correspondent for Bloomberg News. And we have our own political correspondent, Ed O'Keefe. Ed, it's good to have you here. I know you've been in Richmond for like 10 days now Something covering like this story. Uh, you heard Gail King's interview with the governor. What did you make of what he said? I, you know, clearly he's bound and determined to stay. Um, and there is some evidence this morning that Virginians, at least half of them, may be okay with that. Uh, what I thought was interesting, though, is that uh, he still clearly hasn't come up with some specific plan on how to move forward, other than he mentioned, uh, and I don't believe we heard this part, but he talks later about um, concerns with infant mortality in the mm-hmm. state and trying to tackle issues like that over the next three years. People need to remember outside of Virginia, they only get elected to one term as governor. So he's a lame duck immediately. So if he stays, he stays, and it's no political retribution for him. But there clearly could be for his party. And I think it's it's still an open question as to whether Democrats are really going to tolerate him being in office for the next three years. There are legislative elections later this year. Uh, Mark Warner, the senior senator, is up for re-election next year, while it's also a presidential year. And the 13 electoral votes of Virginia are ones that both parties desperately want. And if these guys are still around, all three of them, even just one or two of them, uh, it could be radioactive for Democrats. Jamel, you're a Virginian, um, but looking not just at this as a state story, but as a national one, why do you think this is resonating? I think there are a variety of issues. I mean, with Northam and Herring in particular, there's sort of the, this larger national reckoning with racism that's sort of ongoing um, and some, to some extent prompted by the president and the president's sort of uh, use of, of racialized rhetoric and, and, and racist rhetoric over his term. And I think Democrats in Virginia and Democrats nationally are seeking to kind of basically create an atmosphere of zero tolerance for anything like that, to create a contrast by saying in our party, if you have any sort of like whiff of racism in your past or present, um, that kind of renders you radioactive uh, for for the rest of the party. And so I think that is kind of what is driving this. I think also there's just the element of uh, <laughs> it's it, it feels so old fashioned um, and I think just talking to people who are not Virginians, even talking to Virginians, there's just sort of shock that in 2019, uh, an entire state is facing controversies over blackface, a thing that I think many um, observers would have thought is in in our past or at least recognized as being unacceptable. Um, and so I think kind of the, the shock and surprise of just the circumstances of the controversy, plus the, the way it resonates in our current national politics is kind of driving um, a lot of a lot of the attention. Jonah, the president weighs in on a lot of things, and he weighed in on this a few times this week, and then this morning said, African-Americans are very angry at the double standard on full display in Virginia. It's not clear what he was referring to. It might have been this Washington Post poll that said the majority of black residents were okay with Northam remaining in office. Uh, why weigh into this? Because he's like the Norse god Loki. <laughs> he likes to create... Drama. He's a master at trolling and creating division. And uh, and he was watching, I think he was watching CNN. Uh, Jake Tapper tweeted that this tweet came right after a conversation along these lines. There, there are African-American politicians in 
Virginia, as I understand it, who think the calls on Fairfax to resign are unfair given the fact that, you know, all, for all the re- usual understandable partisan politics reasons. And Donald Trump is very good at sort of making, uh, of sowing division and, and, and trolling this kind of stuff. And he gets, for, from his perspective, pretty good results when he does. But- well, you know, some, to some extent, what's going on in Virginia is really about these three politicians and their kind of youth or semi-youth catching up to them. But if you're following 2020, it's hard, it's hard to miss the preview of what's to come. You've got this potentially huge Democratic field with uh, cross-sections that involve a lot of women, a handful of African-American candidates, and a lot of older white men who have had decades of yearbooks and past statements and uh, and sort of generational political shifts where things like three strikes, you're out, or, you know, whatever, the way you talk about crime, the way you talk about welfare, have changed over the years. And so, uh, to some extent, I think it does give us a, a preview and gives the Democratic Party uh, a preview of the pitfalls of zero tolerance um, and also the kind of traps of saying we're going to hold ourselves to a higher standard than, than uh, President Trump or, or his yeah, party. My colleague, Rich Lowry, says, has this line where he says, the Democrats are going through the first woke primary, yeah. <laughs> where everybody is trying to prove that there are zero tolerance people, that they're, mm-hmm. um, they, they check all the boxes on social justice stuff. And this is you know, a radioactive mess if everybody is trying to be you know, sort of prolier than now and purer than now in the Democratic 2020 primary. And you just wonder when the rush to judgment and the inability to stop, take a breath, and wait a second might catch up to them. Because two or three times this week, they've all rushed out and said, he's got to go, whoever it was. Well, you know, then you ask, you hear them saying, give us a little time to seek forgiveness and understanding or for due process. And it's like, you know, are they potentially putting themselves in an even bigger box if they don't say, you know what? I'm not from Virginia. Why don't we let this sort itself out there and see what happens? And the media plays a role, and that will also play out over the next election cycle also. Jamil, I want to pick up on something you touched on earlier. The Wall Street Journal editorial board put it this way. It says, Democrats believe they must sacrifice Mr. Northam to preserve the sword they have made of racial politics for routine use against Republicans. Racism has become the default charge for any GOP policy they dislike on crime, immigration, education, the environment, you name it. The argument is this is tactics. Not true. So I, I don't think it's tactics because I, I do think there's there's substance here, right? The the Northam uh, yearbook photo is genuinely shocking. It is genuinely shocking to see someone dressed up as a Sambo next to someone dressed up as a Klansman, two things that evoke very painful history um, and a painful legacy in this country that affects people living today, people alive, people I've spoken to and living, you know, quite recently have experienced these things. And so I think... I think the substance is important. Um, I don't think I think trying to I think Democrats in Virginia and Democrats naturally nationally are trying to reconcile the the fact that there is a substance here with these emerging political standards with sort of like the yes, the tactical stuff. But I don't think this is a pure like amoral power politics. I'll, I think I'll also add that. And I think, Margaret, you made a really good point tying this to 2020, that there already has been. There already are signs that Democrats are looking for more diverse candidates or looking for candidates who are sort of um, aren't tied to legacies of the politics of the 90s and the 80s. And I do think this very much kind of makes that even more solid in, in, in a weird way, even though, you know, I'm reasonably sure Joe Biden has nothing like this in his past. It may it may cripple Joe Biden's attempt to run. It may damage Bernie Sanders' attempt to run that 
just the the optics of this are going to reverberate throughout Democratic politics for the next year. What about Elizabeth Warren? Because you saw this week another issue here of identity and of race. Uh, She, it was revealed, according to Texas State Bar application, self-identified as Native American on that. And, And critics seized on this, saying this wasn't an issue of true identity. This was her seeking to advance herself by asking for special treatment. Um, does this stick to her? At- it's already sticking. It's clearly sticking, and they know this. And I think to the point about this being a woke primary, that's the element of this that her team didn't anticipate. They thought they'd get credit for being as transparent as possible, releasing tax returns, allowing a thorough review by the Boston Globe of her employment history, and then releasing the DNA test because it would provide such a sharp contrast with a president who doesn't release any information, despite the fact that he won and is still in office. But what they didn't anticipate was that by identifying that way when you clearly aren't or only a minuscule part of you is, it suggests that you were trying to take advantage of somebody else's heritage. And that is a, is a, is a radioactive element of this that they just are not prepared for. And I think she's going to suffer throughout this campaign, whether they like it or not. And there's been this attitude from her team of, well, we put it all out there. Mm-hmm. Don't we get credit for that? Yeah, <laughs> but when you can't verify that you have every document in which she's yeah. done this and we don't know whether she and her family spent decades identifying this way potentially to their advantage, then it invites the scrutiny that they're getting and will continue to get. And Jonah, the president, again, weighing in on this in a tweet, not only mockingly calling her Pocahontas, but then using the term TRAIL, all caps, which many read as a nod to uh, the Trail of Tears, the the forcible relocation of thousands of Native Americans leading to mass death. Uh, is he going to be paid, paying a price for that? No. <laughs> uh, I mean, I, I, like, I, I mean, have the, are, we're talking about this as if these politics of race should have a cost to them. Yeah. But the caveat seems to be in the case of the president, you're saying, no, it's actually a, a tactic that can be to his benefit. Well, I, I just think all of this is baked in with President Trump. The, the President Trump you see allegedly mocking the Trail of Tears is the same president who mock parents of gold star families it is, everyone has made up their mind about the guy and that's there's a reason why he's never made it out of the 40s in approval rating and his real base support is about 35 percent of the electorate which gets us to the fact that this there's if you just look at the math of the electoral college and his approval rating there's almost literally no way donald trump can affirmatively win in 2020 but the Democrats can certainly lose. Mm-hmm. And if you look at the way these fights are shaping up, if you look at the way they, the Democrats this last week walked into uh, Donald Trump's thing at the State of the Union about how we're never going to be a socialist country by unveiling in not great fashion the Green New Deal, it does seem like the Democrats are in danger of spiraling off to exactly the place where the the White House wants them to be. And along those lines, uh, the issue of abortion, very divisive, also reignited. That's where the scrutiny of Northam came from in the first place because of this radio interview he did, Margaret. Um, And Republicans are arguing that Democrats are out of step with public opinion on abortion. A Gallup poll conducted in May 2018 showed 60% of Americans think abortion should be legal in the first trimester, 13% when asked about terminations in the third trimester. And that's where Northam's comments were directed, that yeah, later term. this is term. part of sort of a larger effort um, by, uh, you know, by some Republican strategists to, uh, to try to paint the Democrats to the extremes because if the battle is fought in the middle on these sort of issues, it's much tougher for uh, Donald Trump and, his, and, and that 
segment of uh, kind of the Republican uh, ideological arm, whereas if you're talking not about a woman's right to choose, uh, but if you're talking about something that most Americans find extreme or reprehensible, if you can redefine what it means to support abortion rights, you can redefine how to feel about Democratic candidates. And I think, um, it, going to our other conversation, you know, the the Trump base is demonstrably different than the, than the Democratic Party's base, which is why it's asymmetrical and there's two different standards for how you talk about uh, racial issues or gender issues or, or, you know, sort of anything in the spectrum that we've been talking about this morning. Just also on that point, I think there's something in terms of public perception and the fact that we were referencing a woke primary, I think the term woke gets to it, which is that there is a sense, a broad sense, that uh, talking about race and racism talking about identity is somehow uh, opportunistic, um, is somehow uh, not quite sincere in that, on the other end, President Trump's sort of like open use of racist language, um, regardless of what people think about it, reads as somehow more authentic. And I think that there's, there's a, there's a, there's a, not saying that it is authentic, but that there's like this Archie Bunker quality to it that I think people are willing mm-hmm. to look past versus a kind of suspicion based on um, this country's history with racism yeah. uh, of anyone talking about it. We've got to leave it there. Thanks to all of you. We'll be back in a moment. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on the Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. The Trump administration missed a congressional deadline to officially weigh in on whether Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman was responsible for the murder of Washington Post columnist Jamal Khashoggi. We spoke Friday, the day of that deadline, with the Saudi Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, Adil al-Juber, and asked him about his meeting with the Secretary of State earlier in the week. The, uh, the death of uh, Jamal Khashoggi was a ma- massive tragedy. It was a mistake. It was committed by officials of the Saudi government acting outside their scope of authority. The king in, uh, ordered an investigation. The investigation led to the arrest of a number of individuals. Those in, 11 of those individuals have been charged by the public prosecutor, and the trials have begun. We have said we will investigate, we will hold those accountable, those responsible accountable, and we will punish them. 
The crown prince had nothing to do with this. There was no order given to murder Jamal Khashoggi. And, and the whole country is shocked by this. The trial is taking place. What I tell people is wait until the legal process plays out and then judge us. But don't judge us before the process is complete. Is that what the Secretary of State told you, that he agrees with your assessment that the crown prince had nothing to do with it? I believe that the positions of the president and the Secretary of State were very clear. They said that the evidence doesn't, there's no evidence that points in that direction. The intelligence community, though, had a very different conclusion here. And after the CIA director briefed Congress on the details of what the CIA had found, the Senate then passed a bill saying undoubtedly the crown prince knew about what happened. I don't know what the CIA briefed them, but I don't. I believe that the same briefing that the President and the Secretary of State and the Secretary of Defense at the time received did not point in that direction. So I think there's a, there's, there may be emotions here, there may be exaggerations here. Have you been briefed on what the CIA determined? I personally have not, no. But we have uh, communications with them through intelligence channels. Exactly. And that intelligence relationship is one of the strongest assets of the work between our two countries. Um, So I know you would uh, think highly of the CIA and its assessment. Uh, When it comes to your own internal investigations, um, in October is when this murder happened. Yes. Where is Jamal Khashoggi's body? We don't know. What do you mean you don't know? We don't know. They said that the, uh, the public prosecutor is working to try to establish this fact. We have asked for evidence from Turkey, and he asked them several times formally through formal legal channels to provide evidence. We are still waiting to receive any evidence they may have. You're blaming the Turkish government? No, I'm blaming the murderers who committed this crime. You have them, you say, in custody, though? Yes. They can't tell you where the body is? We are still investigating. There, we have no, a number of, of uh, possibilities, and we're asking them what they did with the body, and I think this investigation is ongoing, and I would expect that eventually we will find the truth. The New York Times has new reporting out, and I'm sure you've seen the story, detailing how U.S. intelligence intercepted communications of the crown prince telling a top aide in 2017 that he would, quote, use a bullet on Washington Post journalist Jamal Khashoggi if he did not return to the kingdom and end his criticism of the Saudi government. What was he talking about? I'm not going to comment on reports based on anonymous sources. We have seen many such reports in over the past two or three months that turned out to be incorrect or that turned out to, that turned out to be incorrect, frankly. And so uh, I don't know this, this, the background. The Crown Prince, we know, did not order this. This was not a government-sanctioned operation. We have an investigation and we have a trial. And uh, many things have been put out that turned out to be incorrect. Did the Crown Prince know of the murder? You're saying he didn't direct it. Of course not. Of course not. Nobody in Saudi Arabia knew about the murder except the people who did it. That's why when the team came back, we said, as far as we know, he left the consulate through the back door. It turned out to be false. And that's when the king asked for an investigation to be launched. The prosecution launched the investigation. The public prosecutor determined that something went wrong, brought in the people who were in the mission, and basically detained them and questioned them and established that, yes, they did, in fact, murder him. You realize, though, that there's a lot of skepticism that there would be this level of dissent to have that large number of people defy the monarch and the crown prince and carry out such a rogue operation. uh, Oliver North was involved in Iran-Contra, and he thought that Ronald Reagan wanted this, and Ronald Reagan did not want this at all. Abu Ghraib, you had people abusing prisoners, 
and the president and the vice president and the secretary of state were not even aware of it. Unfortunately, people make mistakes. Unfortunately, people exceed their authorities. Unfortunately, people do things wrong. We have done the right thing. We acknowledged that this happened. We acknowledged that these were officials of the Saudi government. We acknowledged that they had no authority to do this, and we jailed them, and now we're putting them on trial. Jeff Bezos, who founded Amazon and owns the Washington Post, is accusing AMI, which publishes the National Enquirer, um, for essentially trying to extort him with these incriminating photos. He personally said, though, that the Post's essential and unrelenting coverage of the murder, specifically of Khashoggi, was undoubtedly unpopular in certain circles. Did the Saudi government have anything to do with these leaks to AMI? Absolutely not. This sounds to me like a soap opera. I've been watching it on television and reading about it in the paper. This is something between the two parties. We have nothing to do with it. Well, can you say, though, that the Saudi government and any of its employees or its, you know, contractors that it works with definitively that they had no contact with David Pecker or AMI? That's as far as I'm aware, and I believe I would be aware, we have absolutely nothing to do with this. We, maybe some of our citizens read the National Enquirer when they're in the United States. Other citizens watch the soap opera unfold on television, but that's it. The full interview with Minister Al-Jubair is on our website at facethenation.com. We'll be back in a moment. The final push to eliminate ISIS forces from Syria has begun. CBS News foreign correspondent Charlie Daggett filed this report from the front lines. At full sprint, we race through a desert wasteland of former ISIS territory in eastern Syria toward the last sliver of land still under the group's control. Years of battle etched on the face of our chain-smoking escort behind the wheel. Up the stairs in a bombed-out home, the rooftop provides a glimpse of the final ISIS village of Bakus Fakani. Women in black burqas, trucks, motorcycles, daily life of all that's left in the dying days of the so-called caliphate. Local commander Khalid Baran told us there had been a pause to let civilians leave before the final offensive. Yet moments later, two airstrikes in all probability from a U.S. warplane struck an ISIS position in the no-man's land between the front line and the village. And then one much closer to us, followed by a whizzing noise. What sounded like an incoming mortar that sent everyone scrambling. It's not clear how many ISIS militants remain holed up, But the past few days have seen an exodus of families along with some suspected ISIS fighters among them. They arrive, hungry and cold, to a desolate holding camp in the desert. The men separated from the women and interrogated. They were promised the utopia of an Islamic state. But now these ISIS families have been reduced to eating American-made rations and living out of a hole in the ground. When we first visited the front lines a few weeks ago, right beside local soldiers launching a barrage of mortars, we found some of the 2,000 American troops who've been at the forefront of this fight. Their Kurdish allies have suffered grave losses, more than 8,000 fighters. They now worry the end of ISIS as a territorial force will hasten the withdrawal of U.S. troops they desperately rely on for advice, artillery, and especially air power. We know how important America has been to the fight. 
Are you worried about what might happen after American forces leave? We started this together with Americans on the ground and their air support, Commander Adnan Afrin told us. Just before the end, the American decision to withdraw, it's not a good decision, not the right time. ISIS is cornered now, territory once bigger than Indiana, now reduced to a strip of land no larger than Central Park. And unlike every other battle here, this time there is no escape. There is nowhere left to run. Our Charlie Daggett reporting from Syria. Please tune in to CBS This Morning tomorrow for more of Gail King's interview with Virginia Governor Northam. And Bob Schieffer filed a special tribute to the longest-serving member of Congress, John Dingell, who died on Friday. We didn't have enough time to air it today, but it will be on our website, so please check it out. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Virginia Governor Ralph Northam, Saudi Minister of State for Foreign Affairs Adel Ajaber, Republican Congressman Mark Meadows of North Carolina, and Democratic Congress members Jennifer Wexton and Don Bayer of Virginia. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow. How powerful is Cox Internet? Powerful enough to let your band members in Vegas, Phoenix, and Rhode Island jam like you're all in the same garage. Get gig speeds powered by fiber from Cox. It's internet built for tomorrow, today. Cox, always building better. Download speeds up to one gigabit per second. Cox internet is connected to the premises via coaxial connection. Speeds vary and are not guaranteed. Cox terms and other restrictions may apply. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary and it's not boring. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. I'm going to be your financial coach, someone who brings common sense and an insider's perspective on how to manage your money and your emotions. And I promise we are going to have a little bit of fun along the way. Have a question from retirement to career changes to college funding? Just send us an email at askjill at jillonmoney.com. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts.